Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Medications are powerful, but they're not an agent for a global change in someone's lifestyle or how you might love yourself or how you might develop better relationships with food or how you might sleep better or how you might actually become more interested in yourself as a person. I feel like that's how you cure people. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay, today on The Less Stressed Life, we have my new favorite dermatologist, Dr. Raja Sivamani. Dr. Raja Sivamani is a researcher, professor of dermatology, and private practice integrative dermatologist at the Pacific Skin Institute. He's also the founder of jivafactory.com, which we'll get into. With training in bioengineering, allopathic, and Ayurvedic medicine, he merges modern research and science with a personalized approach to each patient. He's authored over 100 peer-reviewed papers and 10 textbook chapters and is a wealth of information. Welcome. Dr. Sivamani. Oh, Krista, I'm so happy to sit here and talk to you about anything and everything skin and beyond. Love it. Yeah. Skin is a wide, wide topic. Big, big organ. I work with a lot of eczema. We're going to be talking a lot about that. I don't know if we can call it an epidemic. I feel like it's a little bit of an epidemic level when you've got one in five kids up to that are dealing with it. So we will be going all over things. So how did you get into, I mean, people are looking for an integrative dermatologist. All the people I talk to (laughs) wish they could find one. How does that happen? How do you become an integrative dermatologist instead of how do you decide what's the change that happens? Yeah, you know, this is one of those things that you. I wish I could tell you I had a clear path that I had planned for ahead of time and then we worked through it, but it was definitely nothing like that. It kind of just fell in out of necessity. So, And this is kind of just a quick overview on the path. I was an engineer when I first started and I knew I wanted to do something with medicine, but I really liked engineering and thinking about the building blocks of just how anything in general, how do you take something and break it down into its building blocks and then build it back up? And then that way you can have new ways of building things. And I think that really triggered my journey into integrative medicine because when I went through medical school, we had one lecture on nutrition. And I remember sitting there thinking, gosh, there's got to be more to this than one lecture on nutrition. Now, I loved my medical education. I loved getting into the biochemistry, pathophysiology. All that stuff was really, really, really good. But I felt like there was something about lifestyle that was a big area that I needed to grow in. And that's when I got into Ayurvedic medicine. And Ayurvedic medicine, it's a traditional form of medicine from India. 
at first blush, it might seem, wow, this is very different, but actually they have building blocks too. And the way it translates over to Western medicine, I kind of had to figure out how I could translate it for dermatology. But once we started working through it and we've been doing research in the area, started putting them all together. Really, the reason I journeyed into integrative medicine is almost a necessity because I wanted to be able to talk to people about something beyond giving them a medication. Medications are powerful, but they're not an agent for a global change in someone's lifestyle or how you might love yourself or how you might develop better relationships with food or how you might sleep better or how you might actually become more interested in yourself as a person. I feel like that's how you cure people is you get them thinking about who they are and how they can become better, not by giving them a pill as the only way to approach things or a cream. So that was really the journey that took me into integrative medicine. I also appreciate that you mentioned that you had one lecture on nutrition because dietitians love to talk about that. (laughs) How it's, you know, you have to kind of have partners or we're always excited about doctors that want to learn more about nutrition because it is a big piece, right? This is the piece that we're consuming food every day. So to think that it's not related to anything is kind of an oversight. Yeah, you know, when I first went to uh, residency, I remember when we were talking about acne originally and I was a resident, I did my Ayurvedic training during residency too. So just because I felt like, hey, I didn't have enough to do during residency, let me add on an extra bit of training. Why not? But again, it was just that passion inside of me that drove it. So I never thought of it as extra work. I just thought of it as the needed things that I needed to do to get to where I wanted to go. We were teaching each other that diet had no role in acne at the time. It was based on one study. And now it's almost silly to even think of that. To even have entertained that concept is silly because there's so many studies now, epidemiological, some prospective studies showing that absolutely it makes a difference. What you eat absolutely makes a difference. And so I think, you know, kudos to Western medicine because they realized that they probably missed the mark there. And they've transitioned to now realize that, you know what, diet does make a difference. And the conversation has totally shifted. And now I think you'd be far pressed to find anyone saying that acne doesn't have a component that's controlled by diet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I went to residency. So sometimes these landscapes shift. I wish we had more dietitians that worked with us, though. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely something that I would say needs to happen much more in medical education. Well, and just to stand back for a moment and talk about skin issues, I have a friend who has a skin podcast and she says she has a hard time finding, I think you've been, you're going to be on her show. I think she said she has a hard time finding experts in this because a lot of people understand skin kind of superficially, like we need some omegas and there's a couple other things, but skin is an interesting creature, right? We might call something eczema and it presents in so many different ways. So we can't really treat it the same on the outside. Do you agree that like, depending on how that eczema is presenting or how it looks or where it's presenting at does give you clues about what's going on underneath the surface. Skin is one of the most personal windows into someone's, not only their physical state of being, but their emotional state of being. And I'm not talking about religion, but spiritually speaking, just their sense of awareness of themselves, sense of confidence. I think it's just such a big window. And yes, I'm biased all over the place as a dermatologist, but it's the reason I went into dermatology. Yeah, to talk to your question about eczema, there are so many forms of eczema. The word eczema itself is not an actual diagnosis within dermatology. If you look at eczema, it really is an umbrella term that takes on many different forms of things. And just to give a snapshot of this, you can have atopic dermatitis, which is the classic eczema-related disease that we all colloquially called eczema. In children, as they go through, they're very itchy. It's a full body. It can be devastating, not only to the child. I think it's really important to realize that when a child is sick, the mom isn't sleeping, the dad isn't sleeping, sometimes the siblings aren't sleeping. And so 
becomes a familial process. And so if the child gets better, everyone gets better. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have atopic dermatitis. You have other conditions, though, like say you run into some poison ivy. We call that eczema, too, but that's called contact dermatitis. Mm -hmm. Or say you have scaling on the scalp, dandruff, scaling around behind the ears and the nose. You know, you go to a dermatologist to make sure you get that diagnosis correct, but that's called seborrheic dermatitis. And then sometimes you can have these weird rashes on the hands and feet. So you can call that hand and foot dermatitis. So there's so many forms of eczema. So you're absolutely right. And if you look at it, even from the Ayurvedic perspective, they type out the different eczemas based on what might be the triggering factor. Is it inflammatory oil that like in the case of seborrheic dermatitis, or is it just purely dry skin as you get older and older and we're using too much soap on our skins because we don't make natural oils as much, then you get this other condition called xerotic dermatitis, meaning dry skin dermatitis. So Krista, yeah, it is. Talk about just a flavorful area in terms of all these little nuances. You're absolutely right. There's just so much to know about skin. But yeah. at the same time, got to take a holistic approach. I mean, how can you do this with a cream? One cream that's going to manage it all. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Well, on this note, you were really interested in dermatology. It also sounds like you like going to school forever and you're a strategist. How did you decide <laughs> to go into dermatology? Did you have something going on in your life as well or something? Did you see something in your family? I grew up with eczema and it was something that I struggled with and going through different sorts of products that were available. I noticed that certain products, I when I stopped using them, I would flare if I didn't use them from day to day. There's this whole notion of getting addicted to not all moisturizers, but certain type of ingredients in moisturizers. I didn't understand this at the time. And sometimes I'd switch the creams around and I realized, oh, other days when I didn't use the moisturizer every day, sometimes my skin would stay a bit more bolstered. I definitely saw that when I ate certain things that my skin would flare. I love, love, love sour food and citrus foods. It's something that I'm just drawn to. Not so great for my skin. So I've learned to control that aspect of things. But to answer the question of why I went to dermatology, it was totally a mentor. There was just inspiration. I did not get into medical school when I first applied. And it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. The worst thing that I felt happened to me at the time, when I look back, it was the absolute best thing that could have happened. Sometimes these failures, you get stuck into thinking, oh my God, that's it. I had my shot and it's over. But that's not how life works. You just have to keep an open mind and realize that life's going to take you in different paths and you just stay optimistic and positive Then good things happen. So what happened was I met a mentor named Howard Maybach at UCSF. And we started working on skin bioengineering related research. I was down. I was in the pits. But he said, hey, come on. And why don't you start working on some things? And he told me something that really impacted me. You know, in my first meeting, he sat down and looked at me and looked at my resume. And I went to Berkeley and I had like a 3.97 GPA and engineering. And, you know, it was just I did really well. But I was missing that personality point of things. I was a little bit too tucked into the academics. And I remember him looking at me and saying, hey, Raja, you know what? You were really close. And I can't tell you how much confidence that gave me for him to just say, you were really close. It made me feel like, hey, I can land on my feet again and go after this. And it was my first intro to holistic approaches to caring for people because, you know, that sense of confidence was probably worth more than just looking at my resume. And then he pulled me into his clinic and I started seeing how he dealt with patients and how he bridged research with dermatology. And that was the reason I went into dermatology. It was purely this man that took a chance on me and that made all the difference. Mm. And I think it changed my perspective on just what it means to succeed and what it means to fail and what it means to have mentors. Mm. You were talking about the emotions around this and even how emotions relate to skin. So my question for you is, and maybe you had already kind of resolved your eczema by the time you got to school. Did your skin get worse in school? That's a thing I hear a lot very often. And maybe you were already past the point and you already realized what worked well for you. I hear that a lot because I think that this physiology of what's going on with stress depletes certain nutrients, can cause eczema flare. I mean, there can be a myriad of what's going on. Did that happen to you? 
Yeah, I did. And in fact, you know, the type of eczema I had is known as numular dermatitis. And I still have it, Krista. It didn't go away completely. And so I constantly have to just be mindful of where I am. So stress definitely would flare, especially when I don't get enough sleep. And people say, hey, do you get enough sleep now? Somehow nowadays when I get sleep, I'm more well rested, even though I don't get as much sleep. I wake up pretty rested and I don't know why, but my mom is in the same category. She sleeps four hours and she's good to go for the rest of the day. And she's been doing that for her entire life. And her, Don't teach her people mother. to do this. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is not the way to do things. It's a, I, This is such an anomaly. And I've learned to pause and say, hey, wait a minute, I need to just have a good sleep hygiene habit. And I've extended my sleep hours now, believe it or not. So it's one of those things that I've learned to see that it's important. Stress. Not only that, though, when I go to conferences, if I travel to somewhere that's, say, New Mexico, it's a higher altitude or Denver, Colorado, Mm -hmm. my skin will flare to this day. And so I have to just be ready for that and realize that environment plays a role. It's not just everything that's internal. There's this push and play with everything around me. And you have to constantly realize that there's going to be some harmonizing that needs to happen as you go through life and as you go through different geographic areas. And there's so many factors involved. So I still to this day flare with eczema if I'm not careful about it. And so I've been better about it, but it's something that I still think about. Does it move around to different places or does it generally flare in the same place? For me, it it rarely affects my face. It's really the body. So my trunk and legs and arms tends to be those areas. And I think the reason for that is my oil glands are a bit more active. Uh, Sebaceous glands are a bit more active on my back, upper back and upper chest and face. But definitely when it comes to my arms and legs, they will flare much more. So that's typically the spots that get hit. So you were talking about emotions. I often will talk to someone about, for me, working with skin issues is more challenging and difficult than working with digestive issues because that we know is internal. And I don't have to explain, hey, there's probably this other component going on. When you're working with a skin issue, as you're well aware in dermatology, we're definitely looking at the outside. And a lot of us want to look at the inside. Not everyone wants to look at the inside. So inside, outside. But I also talk to people and say, you know, let's look at this from a triad perspective. So there's a structural piece, maybe an nutritional piece and an emotional piece. And you really spoke to that emotional piece at the beginning. Do you have an example or a story or two about how you've seen emotions really affect someone's skin, what's going on? I mean, just you flaring in school is one example. But have you seen that with your clients where the emotions have really been kind of the priority that they needed to control or change or deal with? No question. You look at acne as an example, and you see this a lot. Now we see acne extending into adulthood much more. But if you look at teenagers and folks that are in college, we have a funny term for one of my teachers in residency even used to label it this, the acne bloom that occurs around finals. So anytime you have a lot of stress, whether it's lack of sleep, again, going back to that, or just the brain-skin connection with stress or stress eating even, sometimes people stress eat and that will trigger some flares on the skin too. But we know for sure in acne, if you're having very stressful periods and you're not settled emotionally and you're dealing with a lot of anxieties and things that keep your mind in an unsettled state of frame, your acne will get worse. There's no question. And we've seen that acne gets worse around finals, probably gets a little bit better around vacation time. And that's a classic example. But there's so many other conditions I could talk about. Psoriasis, stress has a component. There's a condition known as hydradenitis separativa, recurrent boils, 
very devastating in the mm. armpits and the growing area, socially very debilitating, worsens with stress. And, you know, with stress, you have all these other networks that trigger together with it. So when you have bad stress, you have bad sleep, as I mentioned, but that diet component is huge because people cope with their stress with eating. And that isn't always the healthiest way to approach things. And so we talk about this when we see patients in the clinic. Yes, we'll give them treatments about, you know, that are topical, but then we want to have a conversation about how you're dealing with their stress. What are the anxieties that you're dealing with. I mean, I just had a patient that came pretty recently and we quickly went over what the treatment would be. But the majority of the conversation was how school going and are you getting bullied? And we had a really good conversation about how they're trying to deal with different sorts of new stresses entering into high school. And that was probably the bigger deal in the whole visit than the fact that they had acne. It was really the acne was a symptom to something else going on much deeper. And, and I think it's really important to explore those aspects. So there's no question that emotions play a role in skin. Mm-hmm. I was reading some research the other day and it was talking about 60% of kids talk about sleep disturbances when they have eczema and 80% talk about sleep disturbances when they have a flare. So when you're talking about affecting the whole family, that's the primary thing we see is like everyone's going crazy because they can't sleep, right? They're not getting to sleep because of the scratching and the itch at night. It's a sleep big deal. And I was as you were huge talk, deal. As you were talking huge, about huge diet, deal. I was thinking, so you're saying I shouldn't eat a block of cheese and crackers <laughs> if I didn't have a lunch plan and stretch. No, I'm just joking. It'll definitely cause some acne flare for me for sure. So it kind of cracked me up. You were talking about the recurrent boils. So I have seen this a little bit, but you talked about some interesting areas, armpits and the groin. So where we're we have lymphatic nodes. Do you see a relationship with where skin stuff is presenting in relationship to the lymphatic system ever? Yeah, in this case, uh, more than the lymphatic system, it's uh, related to specialized glands. You know what's so amazing about the body? It is a landscape that is so well manicured by nature somehow. It is so well coordinated. It's fascinating. It blows my mind. I mean, you have people that grow hair on the head, then you're working your way down and you have all these oil glands everywhere. And then when you get to the armpits and the growing area, one of the things that's really specialized about that area is that you have these specialized sweat glands. We have sweat glands all over body. They're called ecrine sweat glands. But in the specialized areas, such as the armpits and the groin, you have another set of uh, specialized oil glands known as apocrine oil glands. And with this condition called hydradenitis separativa, we don't still understand exactly what triggers it. There's still a lot of research being done. So we don't know if it's those particular glands, but there is those specialized glands that tend to get inflamed. The hair follicles tend to fall out of their natural anatomy and you get quite a bit of inflammation, recurrent boils, you get what are known as sinus tracts, and you can get terrible, terrible scarring in the area and folks that have it really badly. And it's a far underappreciated condition. I mean, for anyone that's listening, if you have recurrent boils in the groin or in the armpits, realize that they're not just boils. In many cases, there is another condition that's out there. And it's debilitating, Krista. I mean, you can imagine this affects people when they're young, it affects people as they gain more weight because there was more friction in those areas. And so diet plays a huge role in exercise. And, you know, it's easy to just tell someone, oh, go exercise. But if it's so painful, how are you going to exercise? How are you going to move? You need to have initial steps to get them towards a goal. And so understanding the skin isn't just saying, oh, there's a boil there. It's understanding, oh, that boil is going to keep you from being able to exercise. That boil is going to be able to keep you from being socially vibrant and going out and meeting people. And the sexual effects of it. That is going to keep you from being sexually open if that's an important aspect of your life because you're embarrassed about it. Mm -hmm. And all of these things, you say it's a skin finding, but that skin finding has so many factors that tie into who that person is as a human being that you really have to hit all of those and be very thoughtful and mindful and honestly, a little gentle with people. When people come in, I think the worst thing you can just say is that, oh, you're overweight, you need to lose weight. 
Yeah, they know that. Hmm. This isn't something that's like a great uncovering for them. What they want to know is how do I deal with it? Like, how do I address that? And right. so I think giving them tools to do that rather than just saying you need to lose weight, they know that. They want to know how. They don't want to know what. And so I think these things tie in. But yeah, hydratinitis separativa, it's getting more conversation now, thankfully, but ties into a very, very important aspect of how skin affects everything in the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many emotions tied to this. I mean, I had eczema all over my face kind of pretty significantly when it came to a head. I talked to someone yesterday who said, oh, I was embarrassed to send you pictures of how my skin looked because I was alarmed when I saw them and deleted them. Yeah. I saw a photo the other day of a man coming off of topical steroid withdrawal and you hear a lot of things. I don't want to like say it here. There were some weird therapies that they were trying because of the oozing. And I mean, it was like a shocker. And that's the movement now. People are coming out and wanting to show the skin because people are so used to hiding and it's really uncomfortable. This is what people are thinking about all day long, right? Yeah, they are. It's a big deal for people because the skin isn't just something that's personal to them just as a physical ailment. It's how they present to the world. And especially if it's on your face, you can't hide it. It is kind of nice that people are taking that by the horns and talking about it openly so that they're kind of cutting out that taboo-ness about it. But you know, there's a lot of folks that are shy, a lot of folks that are really concerned about how other people react. And the truth is, I'll tell you, Krista, when you talk to someone, if you have something on your face, they're definitely going to look. It's a natural reaction. Mm-hmm. And so people notice that, especially in conversation. Conversations. If you need to have something that even requires some social connection or social conversation, if you have something that's showing on your arms or on your face or whatnot, it is going to affect you. And so I think you reporting that this person was very embarrassed about sending a picture over. This is something that we hear day in, day out, especially amongst our patients. Mm-hmm. So as a dermatologist, when I read dermatology research, it's like mm-hmm. skin barrier, skin barrier. By the way, we think filigrin. By the way, blah, blah, blah. This is something I forgot to say earlier. You were talking, You're talking about, about eczema, right? Yeah, I am, talking, I'm, I'm kind of yeah. bouncing around there. As you were talking about exercise earlier, I was reading this article one day and it said, exercise, but it may flare things. So not too much. I'm like, these are like the most contradictory <laughs> statements. Like, let's make this as gray as or vanilla as we can possibly make it. Sometimes. <laughs> and so in your research, what is the current research that you're working on? And then also, what are have been some of the most surprising outcomes that you've seen? Because you've done a lot of research papers. So what have been some of the most fun findings or more interesting findings that you found in past research? And then kind of what are you working on now? Yeah, maybe we can talk about eczema, actually, and I can talk about some of the research we've done there. With eczema, there's so many factors. It's multifactorial. It's hard to pinpoint any one thing. I mean, I think exercise is a good thing. I think it's good to get up and move. And I think is hidden in that message is just be mindful of the environment. If it's really cold and dry outside and you go and exercise in that, then just realize your skin is going to take that on and it may flare as a result of that. And so maybe when it's really cold outside, if you have a tendency towards eczema, you need to be in a climate controlled setting. So joining a gym might make a little bit more sense or having a home gym, if that's even a possibility or doing some exercises at home where you might have some climate control would make more sense. If it's uh, exceptionally humid or if it's something that your skin loves, get out there and, you know, sweat it out a bit. I think some of the concern is, you know, if you sweat too much this way, sweat too much that way. You know, you don't want to get caught in this uh, zone of paralysis by analysis. We know that exercise is important as as one example. Just try to realize that the environment plays a role. So, you know, play around with it. Yes, you may have some flares here and there along the way, but 
it's important to figure out what's going to be a good fit for you, realizing that exercise globally is a good thing because it's not just about the skin. I mean, you have your heart, you have your uh, muscles. I mean, there's a lot of things that um, benefit from exercise that uh, globally are a good thing. Can I share something that I learned from you? Yeah. When I heard you speak at a microbiome conference in September, something you had said was, I'm just throwing in this other piece, there can be a fungal component to some skin conditions, right? And so sometimes we have wonderful results when we do antifungal, but you had talked about taking an antifungal and then exercising because it gets through to the skin. And I think that's such an interesting concept. And I think sweating can be such an interesting thing. For me, using infrared sauna was such a huge piece of my healing journey, getting things out through the skin. So I just want to throw that in there as well as we're talking about exercise, but also what else is going on sweating and an elimination of garbage, essentially, right? And also like how we get things out. Yeah, no, there's no question. I mean, sweating is a way that you can release certain things from the body and you can use that for good. What you're referring to is sometimes when people have a fungal infection or something like what's known as tinea versicolor, we'll give them some, in some cases, an oral antifungal and the way it's delivered to the skin is through the sweat. And so you wait 30 minutes to get let it absorb and then you sweat it out. And so just, again, speaks to this gut-skin connection that we have a very robust, rich network of communication and the skin is part of that communication. Mm-hmm. And then going back to the eczema in terms of like what are the different sorts of factors that are going to come into play, you know, there's no one size fits all. I think with atopic dermatitis, let me kind of streamline the word eczema down. With atopic dermatitis, we know that there are many different subsets. Some people with heavy skin barrier. Some people, it's heavy immune system. And there was a very nice study that came out pretty recently in this past year where they looked at people that had a flagrin defect, which is uh, one of the proteins that's important for the skin barrier with eczema. But then there are other folks that they also studied that didn't have that flagrin defect Mm -hmm. and had eczema, atopic dermatitis. First of all, right there, it goes to show a flagrin defect isn't involved in actually the majority of people that have atopic dermatitis, like a full-on mutation. They probably have some deficiency in their skin barrier along the way. But what was really interesting in that study is that the folks that had the flagrin defect were much more sensitive to things like detergents that were being used to wash their clothes or if they were going to get exposed to hard water. Because there's been all these mixed results with hard water versus soft water. But I think part of the problem has been it's just been a big amalgam of everyone. We just call them atopic dermatitis instead of basically subsetting those folks into different forms of atopic dermatitis. Because it turned out the people that didn't have the flagrin defect and had atopic dermatitis They didn't react to the detergents as much. They didn't react to the hard water as much. And so we're starting to understand now that, yes, we have this big disease term, but there are different subgroups in there and the subgroups are going to react differently. And you might not know what your subgroup is if you have atopic dermatitis and you're going to have to figure it out as you go along. So be wary of one size fits all kind of approaches to anything. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. You have to take a bit more of a personalized approach and realize that your body is going to be unique from studies. So I do want to talk about one study that we did too. And the first thing is when you look at clinical studies, we're trying to take an average result and apply it to everybody. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of value in that because then what you can do is you can develop theories based around a scientific principle and then try to apply it knowing that we're generally human beings and have generally the same sort of functioning physiology overall. But the truth is, We're not all the same. And we know that because there are spreads. We have things known as outliers in clinical studies. So realize that, yes, when you take an average result and try to apply it to everyone, there are going to be a lot of misses in that. And it may not be 100 percent misses. Maybe a miss is basically, oh, it didn't work for me as well. And that's the kind of thing that we see, that if something is validated, it'll probably have some effect, but it may not have as much of an effect for you as it did for the person next to you. You can't guarantee it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you always have to have that open conversation and realize 
that like this study that I just talked about where they looked at different defects, you're going to the next level and saying, okay, now we're going to take this condition and realize that maybe there are different facets to this condition and let's look at that. And I think that's where bringing in Eastern philosophies makes a huge difference because they already have a paradigm that allows you to start subsetting people within a diagnosis. And I think this is where Western and Eastern medicine can come together to form innovative research. One of the studies that we did, stepping away from this integrative kind of research, we looked at something as simple as dilute bleach baths. And we exposed people, and I just want to also mention the lead investigator on this, who's an integrative dermatologist as well. She's at the University of Arizona, Dr. Vivian Shi, amazing person. Krista, you should have her on the podcast sometime. She's really cool to talk to. But we did a study looking at bleach baths and does that affect the skin? Because a lot of people got concerned, oh, will this make the skin worse off because you're exposing it to dilute bleach? And we did the studies. It was fine. The skin held up. There were no issues. And it's basically like dunking into a swimming pool. And we actually talked to people with eczema about this so that we can help control the microbiome on the skin. There's been some more research coming out that has been a little controversial of is it do you need to actually do a bleach bath or can you do a bleach wash that's dilute bleach? So, you know, the jury's still out on what's the best way to do this. But the idea that you're doing something to the skin that isn't necessarily, it's part of your bathing regimen. You know, it's not something that you're putting on as a treatment, but we build it into a bathing regimen. Again, another important aspect, how you bathe. That's another facet that's really important. How do you soap? What soaps do you use? Do you even need to use soap? What about body wash? Are they more gentle? Well, it turns out, Actually, if you have really dry skin, the body wash is still going to strip natural oils off your skin. So, you know, the ingredients that you use matter a lot. So really, there's multiple facets involved. I have a question about your bleach bath study. How long did you monitor that? And how often were they doing the bleach baths? I usually recommend that people alter if they're going to do an antimicrobial bath, like a bleach bath with something else. Like there's a magnesium flake that I really like that's got some silica and MSM. It's really skin softening. So it's really like soothing and healing. So I like to complement it with that and do kind of alternate. So I'm wondering how long you looked at this and if it was in adults only or your thoughts on children, because we think about the children and correct me, we think about them having a thinner skin barrier, right? Or they absorb more per because of weight to surface area ratios. So what are your thoughts there? So when we did the study, it was in adults. And it is true when you have really young children, you have to be a bit more careful about how their skin absorbs and how their skin is a bit more sensitive. Even in that group, I can say clinically, we don't like to do the bleach baths too often. The way we do it is it's just a quick dunk into a a bathtub or if they're going to go swimming, that's great because that's kind of built into the routine. Mm -hmm. Once a week, we don't do it much more than that. And your point about basically like things like dead sea salts, magnesium, there have been some early studies showing that that's actually helpful too in helping with the skin barrier recover and whatnot. So, but with the bleach baths, it's really once a week. If that, sometimes once every other week is kind of the approach that I've taken and it's worked out well so that you don't put too much burden on the uh, parents as well. You know, that's another facet, by the way. It's easy to give recommendations. Executing the recommendations all fall on the parents. You got to read what's available for the parents and how they can do it with their children or even read the person itself because now we're seeing it, atopic dermatitis lasting into adulthood much more. I don't know what the reason for that is. Uh, I don't know if it's because we're diagnosing it more or if we're a soap culture and we're, our skin is just irritated a bit more or if the immunology of just this hygiene hypothesis theory is also just now taking hold much more as we become more and more industrialized. I don't know what the reasons are, but the fact that we have a lot more folks that are dealing with eczema. You have to take into account their lifestyle too. So if you're going to do bleach baths, I do ask them, hey, do you have a bathtub? If you don't have a bathtub at home, it's not going to happen unless, Mm -hmm. you know, they can go swimming. So yeah, many different factors involved. Yeah. And as you talk about personalizing things and things being different, I agree that the research is there that bleach baths worth because we think that there's the topical skin microbiome can get overgrown with staph as the common uh, blame. But I will mention that 
my eczema flare came from bleach baths, essentially. It was like from swimming for so many days in a row. And then it was like, got like crazy vengeance. So that's why I love that you just said, hey, it's a dunk once a week because it kind of controls the topical staff. And this is important regardless, because if there is topical staff, I don't really care what I'm doing to help someone on the inside. It pretty much doesn't seem to matter if there's a topical infection going on. So that is a huge issue. So addressing it from that aspect, I mean, I'm fully supportive, but I just like being devil's advocate a little bit like, oh, kind of uh, perturbed mine, but I had a different root cause. That's why they're not all the same, right? So this worked really well when there's topical staff, but my root cause was a little different. So it wasn't very helpful. So I just throw that in there as well. Uh, Yeah, Krista, I think that's a that's a very good point because when you have folks that are swimming regularly, and even with the dilute bleach baths, you need to do a rinse to make sure you take all that stuff off. You do a final rinse with water. But even with swimming, one of the things that people have to realize is if you're going to go swimming every day and you have eczema, yes, it'll help control. Now we know this. We didn't know this like 10 years ago or like 20 years ago when we didn't have the concept of the microbiome. But we know it can potentially help with controlling the overgrowth of Staph aureus, as you mentioned. But one of the other things is if you do swimming regularly, you need to moisture. You need to shower, rinse it all off, and you need to moisturize right after you get out of the pool. And even then, sometimes doing it too often can be harsh on your skin, like you say. So it is a personal journey. All of these things are personal journeys in addition to the overarching research findings that we're getting, still a personal journey. And I do want to make a point with dermatologists, especially, it's not algorithmic medicine. And sometimes I see this being talked about even from alternative approaches or folks that don't realize that Western doctors aren't just algorithmic alchemists that just say, I'm going to follow this regimen. I'm going to give a a medicine all the time. In fact, there's a lot of grayer decisions that need to be made in a room because we have to take into account what they can and can't do, what they can and can't build into a schedule. So there is a lot of personalization that occurs within a treatment room and within a consultation that people might not realize at first blush, even without being an integrative dermatologist, they're still trying to take into a lot of different factors. So this is why I think that we always talk about the art of medicine. It's definitely there, even if you're not taking a quote integrative approach. I just think having an integrative approach takes that to the next level because now you have a lot more tools in your toolkit that you can deal with. Mm -hmm. You talk about the importance of moisturizing and once the skin is stripped, to making sure we put something back on. So that way that's a protective barrier. So the skin barrier isn't a greater susceptibility to breaking down. What are some of your favorite go-tos to put on topically? Mine are very plain things. Yeah, well, I'll kind of stick to ingredients because there's so many products out there that I don't really like to do product recommendations because, again, it's very personalized, but I like the ingredient aspect of things. So you want to think about two aspects when it comes to atopic dermatitis. Actually, even if you have any form of eczema, like if you have dry skin dermatitis, any form of eczema, if you're going to get it treated with medicines, that's important. But on top of it, the moisturization, the global approach is really the ingredients that you want to try doing are fall into two categories for the most part. One is an occlusive. It helps to just recreate a barrier because your skin has to have a barrier that protects you not from the outside world only, but also from losing water from the inside because you want to trap that hydration in. So that's known as an occlusive can be helpful. So this can be anything that can range from coconut oil to petrolatum. And many people don't realize, but white petrolatum is a pure form of petrolatum, a lot more gentle on the skin. It actually glides across the skin much better. It's also known as petrolatum USP. You'll find it in many products. If you look for it, it should say white petrolatum. It wasn't just a random thing that people stuck the word white in front of petrolatum. It actually has a meaning. Shea butter is another one. So there's many kind of things that are occlusive that just block the skin. And sometimes people just focus on that. But you also have to have something that's a humectant. And a humectant is an ingredient that will grab and hold on to water and keep it in the epidermis and also grab and hold on to it in the dermis so that you can keep the skin hydrated. 
it's one thing to prevent water loss, but then you're still depending on your skin to naturally get the hydration into the skin. And so getting water into the skin is really important. So one of the aspects that's really important there is humectants like glycerin is a classic, classic example. And there are other humectants, but if uh, you just look up the word humectant, you'll see that there's many different sorts of humectants that are out there. So an occlusive and a humectant are really important. And then diet is really important. It used to be thought that if you know, sometimes on these shows, people say, you drink water and your skin is good, you're going to cure everything. No, it doesn't work that way. But on the flip side, if you're not drinking enough water, they've done several studies now looking at this. If you don't drink enough water and someone that drinks like maybe say you only drink one cup of water a day or two cups of water a day, it's very easy to fall behind on water intake. If you're a person that doesn't drink enough water and you start drinking enough water, meaning like you're getting up to six to eight cups. Now, if you have kidney disease or you have other issues where water intake is, you have to be careful. Again, one size fits all. You can't do that. You have to make sure you have a medical reason to or a medical okay to drink water. But if you start drinking enough water, your skin will become more hydrated. They've shown this in multiple studies with biophysical measures that you will get more skin, what we call turgor, and it'll make your skin more plump and more hydrated. And so in those people, drinking enough water is an important thing. So I talk about that as well. Yeah, I love it. So that was a good segue into how often are people coming into your clinic and asking Dr. Sivamani, how is diet related to my eczema? <laughs> Everybody, 100%. Actually, can I say it's 110% because the people that they bring with them also ask too. <laughs> so it's... Uh, well, people like, are seeing some kind of relationship, right? But when you look at the research, it's like, D- not a role, not a role, not a role. But if people are feeling like, how do we address, how do we balance this? Well, you balance it by realizing that research has certain benefits and certain limitations. Mm-hmm. The benefits are, if again, if you're trying to make a global comment and being responsible and putting out responsible public health messages and saying this certain food is going to flare eczema, you want to be sure you get that right with some level of validity. And so to make public health messages out there for the whole general public, and this is something that I think people don't realize in the general public is that when you're going to put out a public health message, you want to be sure you have a lot of evidence behind it. Because like I'm saying, you also have to realize there's a lot of personal differences between people. So you don't want to put something out there that's only true for maybe 10% and make it seem like it's true for everyone. Because that I don't think is responsible. That's irresponsible. Mm -hmm. So when we put public health messages out there, it's got to be done well. It's got to have a lot of study. And that's where the whole challenge with saying, oh, this hasn't been proven yet. That's why it comes to light. Because you're trying to find something with enough validity for enough people that when you put it out there, it's relevant to a good lot of the people. Again, it won't be relevant to every single person, but you want to have some response responsibility about how you do that. And so that's why that's important. But at the same time, I know that a lot of folks come in and say, listen, I ate strawberries as an example, and it flared my eczema. Or other people will say some other food item that flared my eczema. Some people will say cow's milk. And the problem that occurs is when someone says, oh, cow's milk flared it for me, therefore it flares it for everybody. That's not true. You know, it depends from person to person. And so that's why if a cow's milk flared for you and maybe your friend and another friend, great, that's three people. But we can't go out there and make a public health message around that. On the flip side, you can't say, you know, if I ate eggs and I flared, again, you can't put a public health message about that if it's only a small subset of people, because that's not fair, because you might end up messing up their nutrition overall. Mm -hmm. And that's not the right approach either. So we have to balance these approaches. But there's no question when people come in, they've tried all kinds of food challenges for themselves and they've seen different sorts of things that have flared them and not flared them. And I think those are valid too, because that's their experience. That's their skin. And so if they're having that experience, I can't fall back and say, well, there's no public health message about this. Therefore, it's not true. To me, that's silly because 
the public health messages weren't even geared to be able to do that. And so you have to do it in the room and say, okay, if that's not working for you, or let's work together and develop a food diary that we can see when things flare, I think that's actually more responsible medicine. For, stepping away from responsible public health messages, I think responsible medicine is listening to what the patient's trying to tell you as well. Mm-hmm. And, and realizing that sometimes the research isn't there because we haven't done the study. And if the patient's telling you that this causes them to flare, I'm not going to tell them that it's not going to flare, except in one specific case, Krista, is when if they're starting to take everything away Mm -hmm. and their child is starting to become malnutritioned Mm -hmm. or you can see there's a deficiency in nutrition, I think there is a responsibility to step in and say, okay, listen, we need to do this in a responsible way because you can't have your child just on rice water. It's not going to work because that'll cause other issues too. So it's uh, just taking a balanced approach. Right. I see that whole spectrum, obviously. These are the people. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine you, right? Being uh, being in the diet space, you're going to see all kinds of stuff. Right. And sometimes dietary changes do help resolve it. I mean, I use this example all the time that what you are consuming all the time is what's going through your digestive tract and influencing your immune system. So it's going to make some kind of impact. And I'll be curious kind of what your thoughts are. I mean, like you just said, you don't say to people, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, of course, diet is not related to your eczema when someone clearly sees a difference. Is it a chicken or an egg situation, right? Like which came first, I think, as part of the concern. And then I look at why would you have a flare from this, right? So there's patterns of foods that go together. And it doesn't mean that it's a long-term restriction. It might mean that, hey, I need to help you digest these particular types of things or these types of neurotransmitters or whatever that are in these foods that are significantly higher in these foods. We need to be able to process that better so your body can break that down and move it out because right now it's backed up and not moving out. So when people come in, you empathize with them. You say, sure, we try to be responsible about it. But if people ask you, is diet related? Or if you say, you know, is it a causative factor or is it like a result of eczema? What's your opinion? there. My opinion is to ask them, do you think it's related to you because you've been eating for so many years now? Mm -hmm. Like, what have you found? Mm -hmm. And I like to reflect it back to them. I do say that we are now learning that diet has a role in skin. There's no question about it. And then I'd like to learn about how you think it's affecting you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like and that. I, and I think by doing that, you empower the patient too, on two ways. One, I get to learn a bit more about what's been bothering them and what's been the patterns they've noticed, but allows them to talk about it. And I think that's really important because I think people want to also mention, and it doesn't take that long. It's not like people worry that, oh, it's going to become like an hour long conversation. No, it's like a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, they just tell you really quickly, like what's been flaring them. And sometimes they'll have different sorts of tangents that they'll go on because it's really important to them. And you just try to you know, gather all that information and put it together in a consolidated pattern. And if they're not really sure, we just tell them, start doing a food diary. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, you know, just giving them some tools and saying, hey, when you have a flare, just write down what did you eat today and then make a note. Did I flare today? And I tell them, remember, what you eat today might cause a flare tomorrow or the day after. So mm-hmm. let's not make any assumptions. Just write down faithfully what you're eating. And then when you have your flares and let's look at it and see what we find. Yeah, I appreciate you saying like that because we do learn the most from our clients, right? I mean, one of the things that I'm sure you do too is I listen very closely to how this skin issue is behaving because I find that they all behave a little bit differently, but there's a lot of correlation, right? Between how things are behaving in one kiddo versus another. And sometimes we can use those experiences from one to help the other one, right? So I appreciate that you're asking them to be the detective because that's really all you can do. I mean, there's a way more that you can do. But at the end of the day, if someone isn't very personally aware, it's not really going to matter because if they're not personally aware and can't personally see it and can't personally track it, then there's no amount that someone else can do to help them without that information. Yeah, that's right. I agree. So outright, 
wrap up here, but I work with kids in eczema and it's such a more prevalent, right, than adults. Why do you think that eczema is so prevalent in children? Yeah, in children, I think that there's a couple things that are involved in there. Their immune systems are just starting to learn and come into their own. So the immune system's geared to be a bit reactive to things. And so that unfortunately is one of the things where as you're a child, your immune system's probably just a little bit more in overdrive status. But the other factor is that you don't have the natural oils that are being produced on the skin. The sebaceous glands are relatively quiescent and they're quieter. And then as you get towards puberty, the hormones start to shift and the hormones probably trigger some of the natural oil glands and who knows whatever else happens with hormonal shifts. But I think that as you hit towards puberty, you have different changes in the body. And I think that also shifts the way your skin barrier is functioning. And so I think that's why you have some differences. And some people, as they get to adulthood, it just persists. It's, you know, whatever was there before doesn't go away completely. It stays mild and some people just stays severe. And that is an area that needs more research to understand why some children get better and why don't some people have their eczema go away as they get older. Mm -hmm. I think, again, goes to show with the diagnosis of atopic dermatitis, it's not just a one size fits all. We all have like little different nuances to how the disease progresses Mm -hmm. and how the disease improves. Since you also suffered with eczema, did you have a family history of skin things or something related? When it comes to things like numular dermatitis or atopic dermatitis, uh, family history does play a role. I think that if your parents or your siblings have had eczema, I have a sibling who has uh, eczema as well. If you have that in the background, you do have a higher risk of developing it yourself. There's no question. And it just speaks to the fact that there's a genetic component. Obviously, it's not the only thing, but it's definitely there. And so it's an important part of the piece of any history that you're taking with a patient is to understand if this is something that's prevalent in the family generally. Mm-hmm. Okay, before we get into talking about Jiva Factory, you know, as an integrative dermatologist, there's other practitioners that you work with at Pacific Skin Institute. What do you think kind of sets apart what you guys are doing versus maybe someone else's dermatology office? How are you looking at things a little bit differently and using like doing protocols and advising your clients differently? Well, you know, I respect a lot of my colleagues in dermatology. They do some really tough work because people don't have good access in general. Mm -hmm. And so if you can get in to see a dermatologist for any skin issue, and let me just add hair and nails, dermatologists are the expert at that too. Mm -hmm. And so if you have any hair issues or nail issues or skin issues, really you should try to get to see a dermatologist if things aren't working out, regardless of whether they're integrative or not. I think the integrative approach, what that allows us to do is one thing it allows us to, and I can only speak from my experience, it's always hard for me to compare because I don't know what other folks are doing because now I'm seeing that a lot of people are starting to build in nutrition into their conversation. Mm -hmm. And I just have this internal yay because, you know, everybody's starting to talk about this. I think we do well is that we really listen to the patients and we start bringing in the psychological aspect and we'll sometimes delve into things that might not seem like dermatology at first blush, like I was saying, like what's your home environment or what are the stresses in your life? And just have a quick conversation around that too, because we think it's really important for people to see that their visit for the skin isn't just going to be about their skin and that there's more involved. And I think that in and of itself is a slight bit of a different approach than what I was taught in residency. Mm -hmm. In residency, we really focused in on learning the skin stuff really well. And I can understand why, because you want to make sure you get diagnoses correct. You want to make sure you understand what the treatment protocols are. But we realize there's much more to a person that can affect their skin beyond just their skin or what they're putting on it. And so conversations around what supplements they're using, conversations around what their diet is, conversations around what are their general stresses. I think that is a little extra 
level of interest in them as a person. And so I think people see that when they come through and work with us. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, while you're not sleeping a full night of sleep and you're very excited about the work you're doing (laughs) and you're trying to change the world, you've got a new project going on or it's going to be kind of the umbrella for the other projects. It's called Jiva Factory. Will you tell us what that is and where people can find you? Yeah, Jiva Factor is really born out of this idea that Jiva means vitality when you look at it in Sanskrit. And Jiva Factor is just this idea that we can all reach our vitality if we think about it and work on it. And we all want to. We all want to be vital. And vitality means different things for different people. And for some people, it could be as simple as reading something inspiring and just thinking about, oh, how am I living my life or how am I organizing things? Or for other folks, it can be, what is my skin regimen that's working and focusing in on the ingredients? And for other folks, it might be, what am I eating? So Jiva Factor really is this umbrella approach that we're taking that's going to bridge together what we find in the research world with our studies, what we find in the clinic and what we learn from our patients. And then building out a podcast, we're going to be creating a podcast called the Holistic Health Podcast. And it really is a merging of different folks. We're bringing together people from naturopathic medicine, my background in Ayurvedic medicine and Western medicine, and folks that are really into the ingredients, estheticians. We're putting everybody together to bring together this platform so that you can come in, learn and the idea is eventually start thinking about, hey, what is my skin type and how can my skin type drive me towards better products for myself and better solutions, not just things that you buy, but how do you eat? How do you live? How do you exercise? Are there different kinds of yoga that's better for you? And eventually what we'd love to do is building out a situation where we have wellness retreats and we start thinking about not just skin, but skin, body, mind. And we're putting all of that together because we know it all runs together. So why not try to create a coordinated platform that's going to work on that? And so that'll be releasing in the next month, jivafactory.com. That's J-I-V-A factory.com. I love it. And actually, I want to plug your skin type quiz because it's fabulous. I don't know if it's going to move over to Jiva Factory. If it's, and Jiva Factory is live and it'll be live by the time this episode publishes regardless. But the skin type quiz, I believe, is on your practice website, which is I think it's PSIderm.com. Is that what that is? That's right. We also developed the tool itself and we wanted the tool to be agnostic from everything. Uh, We just wanted it to be about the tool itself. It's called Dermveda, D-E-R-M. V-E-D-A. Basically, it's like dermatology and Veda is knowledge. So it's just knowledge of the skin. It's meant to just talk about skin types, go in there, you take a short quiz about and it gives you some ideas around the skin, body, mind, and then a lot about ingredients. And what we're going to do on there, it's really cool, is we're going to have a product profiler. So you can put a product in there and it can look at the ingredients and it can tell you, hey, is this a good fit with your skin type or not? And eventually what we'd like to do is expand that to the nutritional space and say, hey, is this nutritional product a good fit for what you want? Like if you're trying to help with getting enhanced sleep or if you're dealing with anxieties, what's the evidence say around this? And so we're building that platform that's separate just so that we can offer it as a tool that can be helpful for you to learn more about yourself. I love it. Thank you so much for being such a pioneer in this area that's kind of a frustrating area because it's, you know, it affects our emotions and our vanity so much and we want it to be gone immediately and there has to be a learning curve. And you bring so much enthusiastic excitement to it that you make me really excited about the future and kind of changing the paradigms so to speak, of how we are addressing skin and how we can address it more appropriately and individually. So I appreciate all the work you're doing. Looking forward to following you and the new podcast. Very excited. So jivafactory.com. Anything else you'd want to leave listeners with as a gut reaction on something they can do today to improve their overall health status or their skin? 
Yeah, I love that pun intended, right? The gut mm-hmm. reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I was just going to say thank you so much. No, I think it's just realize that any one organ isn't driven by just that organ. It's driven by us as holistic people and our thoughts and what we do also play into it. So, yeah, we're looking forward to seeing how we can change the conversation around health by taking a holistic approach. Love it. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 